Solomon is saying that money provides a certain amount of security. Poverty makes people vulnerable, and that is certainly true. The poorer you are, the more at risk you are in a variety of ways. Being even moderately wealthy insulates you from things that would completely destabilize a person of lesser means. Let's take interest rates, for example. At the time of this recording, North Americans are wrestling with inflation as a result of a variety of factors. And of course, one of the ways that governments try to manage inflation is by raising interest rates. Now, if you're a wealthy person who's paid off their mortgage and who owns their car outright, then you are relatively unaffected by those things. You might even welcome higher interest rates. After all, you've got money in the bank, right? So higher interest rates just means more money for you, not less. But for the poor person, inflation means more expensive groceries and high interest rates means more expensive mortgage payments. So a point here or there is the difference between being a homeowner and being out on the streets. So Solomon is right on here. A rich man's wealth is his strong city. The poverty of the poor may indeed be their ruin. So having money is definitely better than not having money. The Bible does not glorify poverty ever. Verse 16 makes the point that money in the pocket of a good person is actually a blessing. They will do good things with it and will make the world a better place. Maybe they'll invest in a startup company. Maybe they'll begin a charity. Maybe they will pay for their children to take piano lessons. All of that is a win for humanity as a whole. Whereas money in the pocket of a wicked person just leads to sin and stupid, which we could all do with less of. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. As we get into Proverbs chapter 10, we begin to encounter more of what we typically think of as proverbial wisdom. The book of Proverbs is, of course, very practical. It tells us the truth. It tells us how things are. And that's why so many of us are attracted to this particular book of the Bible. We need help cutting through the noise and the spin that we are just bombarded with on a daily basis. We need fresh air and straight talk. And we get our fill of those things in the wisdom portion of Holy Scripture. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love you to open it now to Proverbs chapter 10. I've mentioned a few times now that it's in chapter 10 that we finally begin to encounter what we normally think of as Proverbs. In the introductory episode, I said that a proverb is a wise saying typically characterized by terseness, brevity, and alliteration. A stitch in time saves nine would be a typical English proverb. In Hebrew, proverbs are often built around assonance and parallelism. Assonance has to do with the repetition of certain vowel sounds. The cat in the hat comes back. That entire phrase is built upon the ah vowel sound. Now, of course, that kind of poetry doesn't transfer over in translation. In French Canada, the title of that particular Dr. Zeus book is Le Retour du Chat Chapeauté, which doesn't quite have the same ring to it. Parallelism, however, does transfer over, and that tends to be what we think of when we think of Hebrew proverbs. So the first proverb we encounter in this chapter in verse 1 says, A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. That's a perfect example of contrasting parallelism. The wise son makes his dad glad, 
The foolish son makes his mama sad. That's the sort of binary presentation we'll begin to run into from chapter 10, 1 and following. Which, of course, is what we would expect after the last nine chapters. Nine chapters worth of being told about binary choices. There is a path that leads to life and a path that leads to death. There is woman wisdom and woman folly. There is the house that wisdom built. And there is the house that folly built that leads to hell and ruin. So who are you going to be? Where are you going to go? What choice are you going to make? All of the subsequent presentations assume that basic setup. So let's get into it. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. The Proverbs of Solomon. A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. We'll just pause here briefly to note that Proverbs 10.1 begins exactly the same way as Proverbs 1.1. Flip back a few pages and just look at that for a moment. Proverbs 1.1 says, the Proverbs of Solomon. That's the exact same opening that we have here. And that fact further reminds us that everything between those two brackets was introduction and prologue. If you took all of what lies between those two similar phrases, those two brackets, if you took it all out and just went from Proverbs 1.1 to Proverbs 10.1b, then the book would read perfectly fine. All of that material was extended introduction. So if you're using the book of Proverbs for family devotions, one approach might be to intersperse these introductory poems that we've been reading about in those first nine chapters with the chapter-length anthologies that we're about to encounter now. So you could read Proverbs 1 on Monday, for example, and then Proverbs 10 on Tuesday, and then Proverbs 2 on Wednesday, and Proverbs 11 on Thursday, and back and forth like that might be helpful to do it that way, uh, just to sort of intersperse the encouragements to pursue wisdom with the actual content of wisdom. Or you can read it straight through. That works as well. However you decide to handle the material, it will be helpful for you to note the shift in content that's being signaled here. The poems commending wisdom have now come to an end, and the pithy statements representing the content of wisdom are about to begin. The first one we've talked about several times now, largely because it so perfectly represents the type. A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. That is a classic example of contrasting or antithetical parallelism. The proverb assumes that mom and dad are wise people themselves. Otherwise, they would likely applaud the foolish behavior of their child. But they don't, because they know where that sort of behavior will lead. They are wise. And as wise parents, they desire for their child to follow them on the path that leads to life. As the Apostle John says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. 3 John verse 4. Every wise parent feels the same. Now, I should mention here that most, the majority, not all, but the majority certainly of commentators assume that the Proverbs we're encountering here have been laid out in a more or less random way. Sometimes, certainly, you'll run into a cluster of proverbs that are gathered around some kind of an obvious theme. But by and large, they do seem to be presented somewhat individually, like delicacies laid out on a lavish buffet. Wherever groupings and clusters have been identified, I'll do my best to point them out to you. That being said, there doesn't seem to be an obvious connection between the first proverb in this chapter and the second, which we meet in verse 2. Treasures gained by wickedness do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. 
Derek Kidner reminds us here, such sayings are true at four levels, logical, providential, spiritual, eternal, closed quote. Now, I suggested in the introductory episode that Proverbs are true in three ways, in a general way, in a situational way, and in an ultimate way. And that's similar to what Kidner is saying here. By logic, he is referring to moral code. He's talking about how things are wired. The world is wired to resist wickedness and to reward righteousness. So verse 2 is true in that sense. Then by providential, he means that God is in control. He did not simply wire the universe and then leave it to run on its own. God is involved in his creation to reward righteousness and to punish wickedness. So verse 2 is true in that sense as well. Then by spiritual, he means inwardly or subjectively. So he says here, whatever their worldly state, the righteous are the truly rich, closed quote. And then by eternal, he means what I mean by ultimate. If the scale doesn't add up in this life, you can be sure that it will be adjusted and corrected in the life to come. It will be helpful to keep that breadth of definition in mind as you make your way through the book. Verse 3, the Lord does not let the righteous go hungry, but he thwarts the craving of the wicked. Now, again, you might ask, in what sense is that true? Well, see my three-part definition or see Derek Kidner's four-part definition of true. And I would add, be careful about how much of the truth equation you push into the future, because even though it is not always true that the righteous in this life receive adequate physical provision, it is generally true, in addition to being spiritually true and ultimately or eternally true. King David believed that in Psalm 37, 25. He said, I have been young and now am old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread, close quote. W.S. Plumer says wonderfully there, there are in scripture many general principles stated, which are not universally true, though they are commonly so, and the exceptions to them are rare, close quote. I think that's a useful perspective. We'll talk more about that along the way. Verse four and five seem to go together. A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. He who gathers in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. This little cluster seems to be commending industry and diligence as the general pathway to prosperity. Verse 5 adds to the general pattern by commending insight and awareness. Doing the right thing at the right time is the key to superior outcomes, whereas doing the wrong thing at the wrong time reliably leads to shame and disaster. That's the basic idea there. Bruce Walke sees all of verses 6 to 14 as representing a logical cluster. Walke, in general, seems to see more logic in the arrangement of these proverbs than most other commentators. Sometimes I find his arguments compelling, and then other times it feels like a bit of a stretch in terms of which proverbs should be clustered together. Here, Walke sees the theme of speech as providing some basic structure to all of verses 6 to 14. He assumes that these proverbs are exploring the ways that speech can influence our lives and the lives of other people around us. I'll let you listen and decide for yourselves, beginning at verse 6. Blessings are on the head of the righteous, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. 
The memory of the righteous is a blessing, but the name of the wicked will rot. The wise of heart will receive commandments, but a babbling fool will come to ruin. Whoever walks in integrity walks securely, but he who makes his ways crooked will be found out. Whoever winks the eye causes trouble, and a babbling fool will come to ruin. The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. On the lips of him who has understanding, wisdom is found, but a rod is for the back of him who lacks sense. The wise lay up knowledge, but the mouth of a fool brings ruin near. Again, whether you buy into Walkie's suggested arrangement or not is for you to decide. Certainly, several of the Proverbs there do certainly connect with the theme of speech, though for others, that connection seems tenuous. In verse 6, the meaning seems to be that blessings are attracted to wise behavior and wise speech, whereas wicked behavior and wicked speech go before violence. Violence comes behind them, you might say. And that's certainly true. Most of the times I have seen someone punched in the mouth, it was usually after a fair bit of stupid and sin came out of their mouth. That's not to justify the violence. It's simply to say the same thing that's being said here. Wicked speech is often followed by violent action. The two go hand in glove and glove to mouth, you might say. Verse 7 is one of those verses that doesn't quite seem to fit with the suggested arrangement, at least as far as I can see. It seems to be saying that people will enjoy remembering the lives of righteous people, whereas we'll all do our best to forget the names of the wicked as soon as possible. This proverb reminds me of what the Bible says about the death of wicked and stupid King Jehoram. Second Chronicles 21.20 says, He was 32 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem, and he departed with no one's regret. Exactly that. Verse 8 does seem to touch again on the theme of speech, noting that wise people receive instruction, whereas babbling fools do not, and therefore come to ruin. Verse 9 is fairly straightforward. It's worth noting there the reminder that eventually your sin will find you out, likely in the short term, but if not, then definitely in the end. In a world with a moral order and a moral overseer, nobody gets away with anything, so reader beware. Verse 10 provides a warning about two people who are always on the brink of utter disaster, the schemer and the babbling fool. So stay away from people with loose lips and foolish plans. Verse 11 has to do with outcome. Righteous speech leads to blessings. Wicked speech leads to violence. Verse 12 is quoted in the New Testament in 1 Peter 4, 8. The basic idea is that haters bring conflict and division, whereas lovers promote peace and unity. It's worth pausing here to note that in the Bible, the sort of community that tends to gather around a person, particularly a leader, tells the truth about their character. A pastor whose church is constantly in conflict, if he's been there for a while, probably needs to look in the mirror. Brokenness inside leads to brokenness outside. That's the idea. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks and community forms. Verse 13 is saying that there is a person who gives wisdom and there's another person who constantly requires correction. Which one are you? Verse 14 again looks at outcomes. 
A wise person is always learning and is always gathering nuggets for his or her own use, but also to share with others. On the other hand, a foolish person is storing up disaster for all who come near. There might be another little cluster in verses 15 to 16, both of which appear to have to do with money. A rich man's wealth is his strong city. The poverty of the poor is their ruin. The wage of the righteous leads to life, the gain of the wicked to sin. Now, at some point near the end of our journey through the book of Proverbs, maybe at the conclusion of that journey, we'll have to pause and do a deep dive on what the book of Proverbs has to say about money, because it's one of the most common themes. Here we see that Proverbs is generally positive toward money. Solomon is saying that money provides a certain amount of security. Poverty makes people vulnerable, and that is certainly true. The poorer you are, the more at risk you are in a variety of ways. Being even moderately wealthy insulates you from things that would completely destabilize a person of lesser means. Let's take interest rates, for example. At the time of this recording, North Americans are wrestling with inflation as a result of a variety of factors. And of course, one of the ways that governments try to manage inflation is by raising interest rates. Now, if you're a wealthy person who's paid off their mortgage and who owns their car outright, then you are relatively unaffected by those things. You might even welcome higher interest rates. After all, you've got money in the bank, right? So higher interest rates just means more money for you, not less. But for the poor person, inflation means more expensive groceries and high interest rates means more expensive mortgage payments. So a point here or there is the difference between being a homeowner and being out on the streets. So Solomon is right on here. A rich man's wealth is his strong city. The poverty of the poor may indeed be their ruin. So having money is definitely better than not having money. The Bible does not glorify poverty ever. Verse 16 makes the point that money in the pocket of a good person is actually a blessing. They will do good things with it and will make the world a better place. Maybe they'll invest in a startup company. Maybe they'll begin a charity. Maybe they will pay for their children to take piano lessons. All of that is a win for humanity as a whole. Whereas money in the pocket of a wicked person just leads to sin and stupid, which we could all do with less of. Pastor Paul, I'd like to jump in here if I can. I found this part of the conversation really interesting. This idea that having money is better than not having money is not something that we often talk about in evangelical circles. Maybe because we're just worried about being called prosperity gospel preachers, or maybe because we remember Jesus saying that it's harder for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. So we do tend to talk negatively about money, but the book of Proverbs seems to be offering a slightly different perspective. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I think that's fair to say. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying that Proverbs is saying something different than Jesus said. Obviously, we would expect wisdom written and wisdom embodied to be singing from the same song sheet, and in fact, we do find that. But Jesus and Proverbs are talking about different aspects of this wider conversation. Proverbs here is just saying that money does function as a sort of shield against the ups and downs of daily life. If you have some money in the bank, then if the interest rate goes up a tick or two, you aren't losing any sleep. If gas prices go up 10 cents a liter, you aren't selling your car. That's all Solomon is saying here. Jesus, on the other hand, is saying that having wealth 
can make you feel self-sufficient. And self-sufficient people are generally not in a good place when it comes to admitting their need for grace and mercy. And so that puts them far away indeed from the door that leads to salvation. So would it be fair to say that the Bible's perspective generally on money is positive, but with certain significant caveats? Yeah, I think the Bible as a whole is saying that money is good. There are a lot of things that can do, and a lot of things, of course, that it can't do, and a lot of things it shouldn't be expected to do. Listen, you can love your kids more than God, right? But that doesn't make kids bad. And likewise, you can trust in money more than you should, but that doesn't make money bad. It makes you sinful and confused. So you should repent of that, and you should ask God to help you value and esteem things in a wise and God-honoring way. Absolutely. That's very helpful. Let's jump back into the story now in verse 17. Verse 17, and we have to start moving a little faster here. Whoever heeds instruction is on the path to life, but he who rejects reproof leads others astray. Here again is an extremely common theme, the importance of becoming the sort of person who can receive instruction. People who can be taught prosper. People who cannot be taught lead others astray. Next, we have another cluster of Proverbs having to do with speech. Verse 18, the one who conceals hatred has lying lips, and whoever utters slander is a fool. When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. The tongue of the righteous is choice silver. The heart of the wicked is of little worth. The lips of the righteous feed many but fools die for lack of sense. In verse 18, we're told that hatred in the heart will force its way out through the lips. Walkie says here, hatred inspires slander informed by innuendos, half-truths, and facts distorted and exaggerated beyond recognition, Close quote. For an illustration of that, see the internet. Verse 19 reminds us that if you talk enough, you're bound to sin in some fashion. See James 3, 1-2 for New Testament confirmation. Verses 20 to 21 shift the focus slightly toward the matter of outcome. Righteous speech can provide generously for many, whereas foolish speech is worthless and leads to ruin. Verse 22 is a little bit controversial. The blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. What does that mean? Alan P. Ross provides some clarity here, saying, God brings wealth to those whom he blesses, and without anxiety, close quote. So again, that's a general rule, not a promise. Proverbs does not shy away from the fact that God does indeed tend to bless his people. And generally speaking, if you walk in his ways, the world will reward you. God himself will reward you. And anything you receive from the Lord and from walking in accordance with his ways can be enjoyed guilt-free and worry-free, thanks be to God. Walke sees a common theme running from verse 22 through to verse 26, the theme of pain and pleasure. That certainly fits with verse 22, so let's listen to the next couple of Proverbs and see if we agree with that suggested arrangement. Verse 23, doing wrong is like a joke to a fool, but wisdom is pleasure to a man of understanding. What the wicked dreads will come upon him, but the desire of the righteous will be granted. When the tempest passes, 
the wicked is no more, but the righteous is established forever. Like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so is the sluggard to those who send him. Putting that all together, we might say that good people enjoy what is wise and good, while foolish people enjoy what is wicked and wrong, and each will receive what they enjoy in the end. Wickedness will come for the wicked, and the desire of the righteous will be granted. After the storm of crisis and judgment passes, the righteous are established forever. This reminds us of Jesus saying that the meek will inherit the earth. So enjoy the laws of nature and you will inherit the restored and renewed natural realm. Despise all that is ordered and good and you will inherit chaos and fire. Verse 26 seems to be saying that our every encounter with people moving towards such a destiny will result in disappointment, irritation, and frustration. Wittingly or unwittingly, they are agents of decay and deconstruction. Verses 27 to 32 could perhaps be gathered together under the heading, The Wisdom of Playing the Long Game. The fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be short. The hope of the righteous brings joy, but the expectation of the wicked will perish. The way of the Lord is a stronghold to the blameless, but destruction to evildoers. The righteous will never be removed, but the wicked will not dwell in the land. The mouth of the righteous brings forth wisdom, but the perverse tongue will be cut off. The lips of the righteous know what is acceptable, but the mouth of the wicked what is perverse. One's journey along the path of wisdom and righteousness must necessarily be fueled by hope. The Bible says that Jesus the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, did what he did for the sake of the joy that was set before him. With that joy in mind, he endured the cross, despising its shame. That's how faith and wisdom work. You have to keep the future firmly in mind. The wise person, the person of faith, the person who fears the Lord, is playing the long game. Their hope will end in joy, but the expectation of the wicked will perish. The righteous will survive the upheaval and judgment that is coming, but the wicked will be wiped off the board. The words of the righteous will endure and produce lasting fruit, but the tongue of the perverse will be cut off. These are all different ways of saying the same basic thing. There is wisdom in playing the long game. The wicked may prosper for a moment, and the righteous may have to carry a cross. But in the end, those with wisdom, those with faith, those who fear the Lord will be the only players left on the board. Thanks be to God. And well, that's all the time we have for today. As always, friends, if you're looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. Or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes store or on Google Play. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 